So this morning it'll be in Luke 22 and 23, where we uh, are learning what's crucial and what it means to devote our lives to what matters the most. Thank you, Levi, for getting us set up with that, with the thoughts that led us into the Lord's Supper. Um, I appreciate the way that uh, he entered into the story and brought us into the story. And we're going to pick up there and we're going to continue. What's going on here, as Luke puts together this account, is that he uh, is telling us that there are trials of some sort, and you have to use the term loosely. Uh, These are not um, serious efforts at determining the truth and figuring out who's really guilty here. But there will be these, um, these three hearings, these three forums that involve three different groups representing the leaders and the powers of the time. The first will be the chief priests, the scholars of the law, the leaders of Israel. The second will be Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Pilate is the um, governor of Judea. He represents the power of Rome in the empire, and he He rules on behalf of the empire over Jerusalem and that province. And then the third will be Herod. There's a lot of Herods in the Bible. This is Herod Antipas. uh, He follows after Herod the Great. But Herod Antipas is the one that Jesus calls a fox. And he's the tetrarch over Galilee, up to the north of Jerusalem. That means he's one of four leaders, rulers, kings, who've had to divide the land that was left to them. So it's in, these, it's, it's in the courts and under the, under the authority of these three different groups that Jesus is bounced around and mistreated throughout. First, he goes before the priests and scholars, and they're the ones who who asked the question. They're the ones that have arrested him and brought him up on charges because he threatens their peace. He threatens their stability. He threatens their organization. And so they want to know, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus' answer calls them out and says, if I said yes, you wouldn't believe me. And I, if I asked you what you mean by all this, you wouldn't answer me. I want to read just uh, from uh, there from 22 again. Um, Jesus says, if I tell you, you won't believe me. If I ask you a question, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated in the place of power at God's right hand. And so they all shouted, so... You're claiming to be the Son of God. And he replied, you say that I am. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates it. He says, this is what you keep saying. They know that they should accept this. They're not antagonistic to the idea of a Messiah. They're not antagonistic to the Son of God. They know all about the Son of Man. And they've read Daniel. And they've... They've read all of the prophecies. They get it. They're the scholars of the law. They know their scripture better than anyone. But accepting that this man, this Galilean, is the Messiah, ruins their organization. 
and that's what they can't have. You know, as you go through these, if you're like me, you can't help wonder, you know, do I have any sympathy with them? Do I find myself there with that group? I mean, you don't want to, but if you've got to be honest, you begin to realize that we do have tendencies. I mean, we're the, you know, if, if, if you've been at this Christianity thing at all for any length of time, I mean, if it's in your roots, if it's in your family, if you've grown up with it, then there's, I think there's always that tendency to be like the priests and the scholars of the law and resist that because what you find is that instead of following the Son of God, you're following your system. Instead of following your Messiah, you're following your organization. Not the Church of Christ, but you want to make a Christ for your church. And, and, and here's the thing, how many times have we rejected people who come in the name of Jesus not because they betray him, but because they don't fit with us? And, and when that happens, I'm afraid that that we find ourselves in that position where we are really not listening to our Messiah. We're not listening to the Son of Man. If he's the authority, then how dare we question him and put him on trial? That's the priests and scholars. They're not going to listen. Their minds are set. They have all truth. There's nothing that Jesus can say that is going to change their mind. But Pilate is an uninterested observer. He doesn't want this matter to come before him, but he can't help it. They make it come before him. It wasn't in his schedule today. It wasn't in his agenda. Pilate would have been completely happy not meeting Jesus at all. But the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor, and they began to state their case. Notice that what brings Jesus there is not the case or the matter of Jesus. It's the case and the matter of the priests and the scholars. This man's been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming he's the Messiah, which is a king, which is a problem for you, which is a problem for Rome which claims to be the only authority. So they've even massaged the charges so that it comes to Pilate in a manner that they hope is particularly offensive to the Roman government. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you've said it. Pilate turned to the leading priest and to the crowd and he said, I find nothing wrong with this man. In a way, Pilate is saying, he says he's the king of of the Jews. Who cares? Let him say it. Pilate turned up. Then they became insistent. But he is causing riots. He's disturbing the peace. By his teaching wherever he goes. All over Judea from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they're not wrong. He is disturbing the peace. But he's not causing riots because he's an instigator of violence. He's causing riots because... People like the priests and the scholars of the law and the leaders of the people who want to keep their peace and want to hold their institution together, 
They don't like it that the truth is unsettling that. And that's what's causing the riots and the violence. But Pilate sees a way out. Galilee, you say. Oh, Galilee. Well, send him to my old friend Herod, who really is no friend at all. Is he's a Galilean, Pilate says. Then they said that um, he should be sent to Herod because Galilee is under Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. He asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law stood there shouting their accusations, and then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, became friends that day. And then Pilate called together the leading priests and the other religious leaders along with the people, and he announced his verdict. You have brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence, and I find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion because he sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So, I'll have him flogged, and then I will release him. Now, notice how Herod and Pilate conclude these three trials. Herod demands a miracle. He demands some kind of magic. He demands a spectacle, some kind of show. I mean, Herod wants some reason to believe, and he expects that Jesus, if he's the wonder worker that everybody says, is going to deliver. And when he doesn't, he's so offended that Jesus will not do what he's asked that he kicks him back to Pilate. And Luke says that when it comes to Pilate and when it comes to the chief priests and the scholars, Jesus has a word for them. But for Herod, he says absolutely nothing. Herod is so cruel and hostile that, you, that, that Jesus knows he can't even give him a single word because it could be misused. Herod claims to be the king, the rightful king over the people of Israel. Herod claims to be their king. The Romans at least have the, the good sense to come in and just say, look, we're in charge of things, we're managing things, we're not one of you, you're not one of us, but we're in charge. Herod, though, wants to be their king, and he could use Jesus to his advantage. He could use Jesus to give him and his royal power the seal of legitimacy. Jesus doesn't give him a single word to use, nor does he give him the spectacle that he's asking for. Now, when you send him back to Pilate and Pilate finds him innocent, one of the things that, that might be kind of unusual to us here is that if you, if you go back and you look at one of the earliest confessions of a believer, it's called the Apostles' Creed. Creed comes from a word meaning, uh, uh, I believe. And it's one of the earliest, simplest forms of confessing what a follower of Christ ought to believe. And there's a line in there. 
right after Mary is mentioned, there's a line in there that says he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate gets named in one of the earliest confessions of faith. But you have heard this story in Luke, and doesn't it really sound like Pilate is kind of okay? I mean, where, does, where do you get this idea that he suffered under Pontius Pilate? If you've read Luke's gospel, how guilty is Pilate? I mean, the, the chief priests and the scholars, they're much more guilty, right? Herod, he, he's probably more guilty, even though he just gets offended. But Pilate? How can you say that Jesus suffers under Pontius Pilate when Pilate doesn't do anything that's how you say it Pilate didn't do anything he did nothing even though Pilate finds him innocent even though Pilate says he's not worthy of the death penalty there is a power higher than Pilate and it's not God not that's true but not yet don't go there yet There is a power that actually overrules Pilate. And it comes from the most unusual of places. It's not the chief priests that get their way. It's not Herod over there sulking who gets his way. Verse 18. A mighty roar rose from the crowd. And with one voice they shouted, Kill him! And release Barabbas to us. Now Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. Pilate argued with the crowd because he wanted to release Jesus but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I found no reason to sentence him to death. So I'll have him flogged and then I'll release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder demanding that Jesus be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. And as they requested, he released Barabbas the man in prison for insurrection and murder. But he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. The higher power here, the power that overrules Pilate, is the crowd. They want Jesus crucified. You know, again, like Levi said, on this side of the cross, we hear the story, we know the story, we think we know the ending. But if you're reading Luke, this crowd comes from nowhere. Where were they during all of this? There's not even a mention that this is the chief priest and the scholars stirring the people up. Nope. There's no mention that Herod and his men have gotten out there and are poking people and saying, you know, listen, you need to tell them, crucify them. Let's get that going. We need a good crucifixion. There's not even mention of the the tradition to release 
a criminal and kind of find a, a gracious way to get Jesus out of there, but because of a, um, uh, you know, a paperwork mistake, Barabbas ends up in Jesus' place. This crowd is filled with bloodlust. This crowd wants an easy solution. Crucifixion. That'll take care of it. All these problems will go away. All the turmoil we've been going through. The chief priests and scholars will finally shut up. Herod will finally be quiet and get back to business. Pilate can just leave us all alone. Let's just crucify someone and get on with it. And give us a murderer. Give us Barabbas. He's all right. He murdered a few people. But no, we want Barabbas back. And if you're thinking, this doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. Because this isn't the Bible that you're trying to make sense out of. This is the Bible telling you that the crowd doesn't make sense. This is the word of God saying to you, the crowd is messed up. The crowd is depraved. Look, give the other groups some credit, okay? At least the chief priests and the scholars are protecting their institution. At least they are protecting their own interests. And Jesus threatens their peace. And out of their fear, they move all of this into action. Give Pilate some credit. He may not have much of a spine and he doesn't do much. But at least he recognizes that Jesus doesn't deserve to die. And give Herod some credit. At least he expects Jesus to do something. At least he believes that there could be power there. And at least he gets offended when Jesus doesn't do what he wants. But the crowd? The crowd? They want a murderer set free. And they want Jesus crucified. And then what? I read Luke's account of this and if you're like me your mind goes back and you wonder what would I do if I was there what would I do if I was there and what bothers me most about this is not just the injustice and the cruelty but the fact that when you read Luke's account Jesus is so alone Three trials and a crowd. There's no one advocating for him. Pilate says he's innocent, but Pilate doesn't move on that. The chief priests and the scholars, they're certainly not his friends. Herod's not his friend. But couldn't there just be somebody in the crowd? Couldn't the crowd have a debate? Couldn't they at least engage in a conversation about this and decide whether or not Jesus is worthy of death? There's no one. And I make myself look at this and I wonder, what would I do? And I tell myself, because of, of, of the way I've grown to know Christ, I tell myself, I say, you know what I would do? I would be right there beside Jesus. That's what I would do. I would be by his side and I wouldn't let anybody mistreat him. And I would look for the closest neck that I could wring. And I'd look for somebody's arm to break. And I would just throw myself into all of them who were coming after him. And I would just beat into them with all the strength that my old body can muster. And I've got old man strength. And I feel pain all the time. And so, so what if they hit me? 
I'm okay with that, but they're not touching Jesus. And as soon as I do that, I realize, you know what? I've just ended up in the crowd. The bloodthirsty, nonsensical crowd that wants to solve everything with violence and strength. And Jesus is alone again. I don't know where you find yourself when you think back. But there's not a good place to stand, really. Not on your own. You and I don't get the privilege of finding a place to stand and say, oh, well, I would do the right thing, and this is what the right thing would be. No. Because sometimes we end up with the chief priests and scholars, and we think, well, we love God, we love our Bibles, and we love Jesus, of course, right? But we've got to do things the right way and can't disturb the peace. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. Maybe you find yourself with Pilate. You know he's innocent. You know he doesn't deserve this. And you know that that means that you're going to have to stand against a bunch of people, or maybe just one or two people, who want the worst. But it is tough and it is scary to do that. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. Or maybe you're like Herod. You want that power. You want Jesus to be your Jesus. You want Jesus to do the things that you're asking. And you've been disappointed because he's let you down and he hasn't given you that. Or maybe you're just in the crowd and even though you think you're righteous and for the best of reasons that you're going after, everyone who's going to cross you and your people, you find out that, guess what? Being in that crowd is the worst place to be. And getting caught up in its way of thinking is so completely against God's way of thinking that you will even believe that that looks like Christianity. That being bloodthirsty, protectionist, being protective of you and your own to the extent that you would use violence as a weapon in the name of God, whether it's verbal violence or physical violence or social violence or political violence, to think that that accomplishes God's will puts you in the crowd. Later on, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And later on in the book of Acts, some other fellows who thought that the way to do this was to pick up sharp objects and start fighting people, they find out that there is another way, that there's God's way. And this is after the resurrection. And when they heal someone publicly before the people in Jerusalem, and people are amazed that this could happen, they're saying, why should you be so amazed? This is the power of Jesus, the one risen from the dead. And in Acts 3, you've got Peter and John talking to the people, and they say, this is the same Jesus that you, not they, this is the same Jesus that you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we're witnesses of this fact. Now, I don't know how that hits you. Maybe you're thinking, I wasn't there. I didn't do that. I can't be guilty here. Well, then where are you standing? Are you going to go stand with Pilate? Are you going to go stand with Herod? Are you going to go stand with the chief priests and scholars? Are you going to stand with the crowd? 
Somebody will say, I want to just stand with Jesus. Well, if you want to stand with Jesus, then what you have to do is repent. Because right now, before you repent and submit, you're either with the crowd or you're with one of those other three. I mean, even I tried to put myself in the right place, and guess what? I ended up in the crowd. That's what always happens to us. Because that's what happens to us when we try to save ourselves. When we try to justify ourselves. The path of self-justifying, saying that, well, at least I'm better than everybody else because I don't break the Ten Commandments. I go to church every Sunday, and I know what's right, and I'm not like those other people that do things wrong. That's the path of the priests and the scholars of the law. I want Jesus to act. Come on, Jesus, show us your power. We'll demand a miracle. That's the path of Herod. And the path of intellectually accepting all of this, but doing nothing about it, is the path of Pilate. And I can't even explain the crowd. The message that Peter and John give after they convict the people that they are the ones who killed the author of life. And by the way, saying that it was the crowd, saying it was the people, means by extension, it's all of us. Who's guilty here? I am. I'm guilty here. Who's guilty here? Sorry, you are. We are, because we are the crowd, we're the mob. And no matter how we try to dress ourselves up and whatever label we want to put on ourselves, we end up there. We don't get saved by our own ability to change groups. We don't get saved because we identify with the proper group. There is no proper group. We are saved by repentance and submission to the Messiah. Acts 3.18, Peter says, God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. Now, repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. The good news in realizing that you're part of the crowd, or the scholars, or Pilate, or Herod, or whoever else, the good news about realizing that you stand nowhere where you can save yourself is that you really get to hear the message that says, but he will save you. Just turn to him. Repent. Turn to him. Reach out to him. Repent of your sins. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. What does repentance look like for you today? might depend on what group you found yourself standing in. Um, I, I, I want you to reach out to him. I don't have to answer all of that for you. You need to repent of your sins and turn to God. The first thing we do is that in admitting that we are a sinner, we admit that we need a God who loves us and can change us. We admit that we need a rescuer. We need a deliverer. We need a Messiah. And that's not weakness. Well, I mean, it's actually power to admit that we are weak and we are powerless. Why do we want to be in that nonsensical crowd that demands that the Messiah get crucified and a murderer get released? That doesn't make any sense. Have the courage 
to turn away from the crowd. I want you to pray with me. Father, I ask that you would be with us this morning, that your spirit would be active among us so we can consider what it means to repent of our sins, to turn to you. And Lord, only by your power, only by the blood of Jesus can those sins be wiped away. And forgive us of all of our attempts to clean it up and fix it on our own. And Father, I pray that you would be with any here who need to turn to you and repent. And be with all of us that we might not shame that, but we will humbly respect that and consider our own ways as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, while we're singing this song, uh, the Sizemores, we're going to ask them to come up here, and uh, maybe you want to encourage them too, and then we're going to send them out with a blessing this morning. But I want you to know also that if you need to repent this morning, if you need to submit to God, then we want to respond to that as well. So let's stand, let's sing. Our shepherds will be up here to receive anybody who needs to respond to God.